Thank you very much, Richard. Can you hear me? Yes, even at the back, yes. Lovely. Okay. Well, it's, it's lovely to be back here, lovely to be back in Oxford. It's quite some time since I graduated from here. As you heard, I did O-levels. Um, but I remember my time here, really. It's sort of bathed in a golden glow. I, I love being a student here. I love the city. I love the university. So it really is a treat to be back. Um, I must confess to feeling a little bit phased by actually being able to see my audience, because usually I look down the barrel of a camera... Or I speak to Hugh or George or Fiona, and that's it. So if I feel a look a bit sort of phased by this, uh, please don't be surprised. Um, I'm also quite challenged by the idea of having to speak for 35 minutes because my standard news pieces are two and a half minutes. <laughs> so um, bear with me. However, whenever anybody asks me about my nearly three years now as BBC Education correspondent, I always reply, it's been terrific packed with stories, new policies and controversies, and that I've rarely been still. And actually, when I started laying down the bare bones of this lecture, I thought, well, I probably can fill that time. Well, as Richard said, I've worked in broadcast news now for many years, and in all the different briefs that I've covered and all the different jobs I've done, one thing holds true. News loves controversy. The best stories are those where there's tension and opposition, where there's something being changed that makes people angry. Of course, sometimes we do provide straightforward public service information, and occasionally there is straightforward good news to report. But usually, let's face it, reporting the status quo wouldn't be very, very interesting. So my getting this job six months into the new coalition government represented a stroke of good luck, with its restless, radical and combative education secretary and a universities department led by a Lib Dem about to treble tuition fees, I was going to be kept busy. And I say good luck speaking as a journalist, of course, and not as a comment on any of the policies. I'd spent a long time in Westminster before doing this brief, working as a political correspondent. Reporting politics provides a great grounding for any journalist. It taught me so much about how government works, how policies formulated, how policies that are controversial get floated in the press just to, air, just to test the air, and how some stories are leaked to friendly newspapers so that the Minister of the Day can tell the public what they'd really like to do if it weren't for the pesky requirements of government. Now, I don't want to come over too holier than thou about political machinations. Journalism and politics exist in an uneasy symbiosis, and we've heard that today, haven't we, through the reporting of the Damien McBride um, memoirs. And, you know, reams have actually been written about this already. But Westminster was, for me, an excellent preparation for following that most political of departments, the DfE. My interest in politics, though, isn't shared by everyone. And when I came to education, I quickly found out that there was a whole constituency that wasn't necessarily as interested in, in that sort of thing, and that was parents. Parents care about what's happening to their child and to their community, and while, of course, some of them are into policy, they're by and large more concerned by the practical effects of policy on their lives than on what's going on behind the scenes. Everyone has a view on education because everyone went to school. It makes the brief very accessible to audiences, and we're rarely short of strong views when we go out to vox pop people. But it can mean that stories that are, to my mind, good, strong controversies can fail to excite the public. When I began this job in November 2011, the streets of London had just witnessed a huge student protest, over 50,000 protesters marching in anger at the trebling of maximum tuition fees to £9,000. And that's really where I'd like to start my retrospective today. 
You'll remember that while the vast majority of the march was peaceful, the day ended in violence from a small crowd at Millbank Tower near Conservative headquarters. Now, I was in fact actually in my last week at Westminster being a political correspondent when it took place. Um, and although I did do one of the pieces that went out that evening, which was about anti-liberal Democrat feeling, I'd like to play you the piece that was uh, done as the main <coughs> news item that day by my colleague Tom Simons to remind you of what happened and how it was covered. So I'm sorry there weren't the Astons there, the name titles. You could probably tell who everybody was. And I'm sorry too about the F word that was on the cheek of the protester. That got blobbed out in later uh, showings of that piece. Um, <laughs> But my real point is, I don't know what you felt when you saw the coverage at the time, and the BBC was very much in line with what, what everybody else did, really. Did you feel anger at the violence? Did you feel anger at the media covering the violence first and the issue second? Or did you feel that the violence catapulted the event to the lead story, so the actual issue of higher fees actually got more airing than they would have done otherwise? I incline, on the whole, to that third view. News is quite a restless beast, and TV news particularly wants strong images. Some will feel the story was skewed the wrong way, the violence of a minority overshadowing the peaceful protest of tens of thousands. But I think the result was eventually a closer focus on the actual policy issue. I spoke to Tom Simons about it, and his feeling was that actually the issue of raised fees had been bubbling away for a while, and that the massive protest and subsequent violence was the first that had been seen in many years, and so was more worthy of being the main focus. I also think the protest highlighted something else, which was the scrapping of the education maintenance allowance. And you remember that was a sum of money that was given to 16 to 19-year-olds to encourage them to stay on in sixth form and in further education college, colleges um, to those young people from, from families of modest means. Um, now, you couldn't see it in that report particularly, but many of the banners did say, save EMA on them. And news editors, who were initially just focused on the main issue of raised tuition fees, started asking, what was EMA, and shouldn't we be covering it? And we did do that, and we did it in some detail. I want to fast forward now, 18 months, to the summer of 2012, by which time the £9,000 fees were a fact of life, the vast majority of universities were charging that sum for all or some of their courses, and the attention started to shift, or maybe I should say expand, from the effect of the new regime on students to its effect on universities. The two were, of course, linked. With the rush to £9,000, a rush that simply hadn't been foreseen by ministers, came a difficult financial problem. With the government footing the bill for the student loans, with years before any return, the cost of the new loan system was suddenly starting to look rather higher than had originally been envisaged. Enter then the concept of core and margin, basically a top slicing of student places across all universities and a reallocation of those places to the lowest bidders, that is those charging fees of less than £7,500. A further element of marketisation came with the loosening of number controls on universities, allowing them to recruit last year as many applicants with two A's and a B at A level as they wanted. And this year, as you'll know, that was revised to an unlimited number with an A and two B's. Now, I hope you're still with me. You probably are, because some of you will know this stuff inside out. But when I first tried to explain this to one of our senior editors, he looked baffled, his eyes glazed over, and my heart sank. This was important stuff. It was going to determine the future shape of our universities, perhaps. But getting it across to a general audience was going to be a real challenge. So I'd like to show you how we did it. 
slow with the microphone there at the end. Well, TV can only ever really cover the basics, and with a complicated story like that, there is a certain amount of painting by numbers that goes on. But I think I was fairly pleased with the eventual result. To my mind, clarity is all, and we have to produce pieces that are intelligible to an average viewer, as well as providing real news for people who are in the know. And I thought we just about managed that there. A lot of help from graphics. I'm going to play you one more piece, partly because I like it and partly because, for me, it represents a triumph in one of the knottiest problems that we have as education broadcasters, which is devolution. I alluded to it there, of course. Education, as you will know, is a devolved issue. And the big headache for us when we're doing university stories is that each nation has its own tuition fees policy. Those students from England are the only ones who, wherever in the UK they study, will have to meet the full costs of their degrees, unless they're eligible for fee waivers or for bursaries. Scottish universities remain free to students living in Scotland and to students from the EU who have to be given the same treatment. But students from England and Northern Ireland going to Scottish universities will have to pay the full whack. Welsh students are cushioned from the fee rise in Wales and elsewhere in the UK by a subsidy from the Welsh Government. Meanwhile, students in Northern Ireland who stay at home to study will only see their tuition fees rise in line with inflation, but fees for those from elsewhere in the UK will be higher. Confused? Yeah, well, not surprised. So pity us who have to reflect these complexities in an average two-minute piece. So the piece I want to play you now focuses on just one aspect of what I just talked about, the fact that EU students can get a free higher education in Scotland, whereas those just over the border in England can't. So it's a real anomaly, and one that will have been baffling, I think, to many viewers. It's going to be fascinating to see how long this situation of equal treatment of EU students in Scotland can endure. And I suppose, as with all things north of the border right now, much will depend on the outcome of next year's referendum. When I first started this job, higher education was the big issue, but over the months, the other major department that I report on made clear that it was nobody's second story. Michael Gove has brought about a whirlwind of change in schools, in structures with academies and free schools, and in what's taught. He's changed the curriculum with phonics and grammar tests for primary school pupils, and there's a new academic core with the EBAC for secondary schools, beefed up by new GCSEs and A-levels that do away with modules. Add to that Mr Gove's personal style, a keen intelligence combined with a taste for street fighting. And it all adds up, to borrow a phrase from the press, to good copy. There's been a lot of tireless activity under this Secretary of State, but I think many would agree that it's a bit soon to say how history will judge him. Of his structural reforms, academies are probably the biggest, taking thousands of schools out from under the local authority umbrella, giving heads the power to deviate from the national curriculum, to have longer school days and terms, and to use the money that was top-sliced by local authorities for other purposes. They were also the first to have a power that's now been extended to all heads, namely the right to reject national pay agreements and to set their own according to performance. All that's clear enough. But actually, some of those powers are available to maintain schools too. They can already request to deviate from the national curriculum. They can tinker with the school day. And recently, they've been given the right to change the school term. What are academies for? Michael Gove would say instantly that they're about raising standards. Now, that seems like a reasonable case when a school is failing or is consistently underperforming. And it needs new leadership and new ideas. But the jury's still out on whether academies in themselves raise standards across the board. We don't yet have the evidence 
in enough bulk to see what academization has done to pupils' progress and to performance more widely. I've spoken to academy head teachers who've said that this government has liberated them from paperwork and red tape, that they're now freer than they previously were to get on and implement changes that they want to make and that only they, the leader on the ground, can know about. I've also spoken to head teachers who say the academy freedoms amount to little. They're locked into the national curriculum whether they like it or not because of the pressure of the EBAC and that means they don't have the room to deviate. I've spoken to others in maintained local authority schools who hesitate to take the step to becoming an academy, not necessarily on ideological grounds, because they, but because they don't know what the future will hold after 2015, which of course is the year of the next general election. The future of free schools must also be in some doubt, as Labour has said there'll be no new ones after 2015 if they win, although there are many who think their idea of parent-led academies amounts to something very similar. By 2015, free schools will account for about 300 schools, with potentially another 200 in the pipeline. In terms of sheer numbers, they're much smaller than academies, but they've attracted more attention because, of course, the idea of parents setting up their own schools is so interesting. In practice, it's turned out that parent-led schools are actually in the minority. The majority are either teacher-led or set up by education charities. Free schools are essentially academies, but new, set up from scratch, and the only funding for setting up a brand new school is via this route. If you want a new school in your area, it's got to be free. The basis for, that, for the policy is that it's demand-led and provides choice, be that for Latin, religion or bilingualism. Choice. It's a good word because few in our consumer-driven society are against it. But free schools, as they're constructed, can only really provide choice for a few, for those who want that sort of school and who are able to get in. For the oversubscribed free schools, choice remains hypothetical. Still, the government is taking the gamble that choosing to build in some extra capacity, allowing some free schools to set up in areas with unfilled places elsewhere, in schools nearby, will, pro will prove electorally popular. It is controversial, though, as we saw at the start of term, with the local government association predicting more primary school pupils than available places in nearly half of all school districts. Critics say that with money so tight, diverting cash to one particular project, free schools deprives, deprives other needy parts of the system, with the neediest at the moment being primary schools. Whichever sort of school I've been in, one theme recurs over and over again from heads, the number of changes being brought in all at once. The changes to this exam system alone are mind-boggling. And in view of that, I wanted to show you this, which is printed from the Ofqual website, and these are the changes being made to the exam system alone from this summer down to 2018. It's impressive, isn't it, yeah? There's a lot going on, and I wonder how many head teachers have committed this to memory. I know our head teacher hasn't. But it, it does give you an impression of how much work is going on and how much change. And it also leads me to wonder, is the classroom such a focus for political debate, sometimes approaching political warfare in other countries? I don't know the answer, and if you do, answers on, the po on a postcard, please. But it is what makes the brief so fascinating for, for journalists, because the classroom becomes the battleground for all sorts of arguments over our international competitiveness, over social mobility, over excellence versus inclusivity, over facts versus skills. And where there's political debate, there is, of course, news management. I didn't cover the, the DCS, DCFS, as it was, 
but colleagues who did say they were regularly called into the department for briefings, and any major announcement was preceded by a briefing for broadcasters and print journalists, often led by the Secretary of State. Things are very different under the coalition. The stance from the outset we were given to understand was that the business of government was not about press briefing, but about getting on with the job. Ministers, and especially the Secretary of State, were going to be made less available to us. And inevitably, the very fact of being in coalition meant there was more negotiating behind the scenes to be had before policy could be delivered. That didn't mean, though, that they were less interested in press coverage. If we'd had any doubts on that score, an email written by Michael Gove in late 2010 and obtained and published by Chris Cook from the Financial Times in 2012 made clear just how much attention was paid to the media. It was a New Year action plan with ideas of which stories should come out when and how they should be spun. Week one was, is reform bearing fruit on the ground week? Week two was tackling failure week. Individual opinion formers and journalists who should be briefed were named with different case studies and lines for regional and national broadcasters. So just as much thought was going to product placement as as had gone on before. And in fact, placement is a good word because the DfE, Department for Education, has pursued a policy of selective briefing that will be apparent to anybody who watches these things. And that includes major policy announcements, with certain papers being regularly the vehicle of choice. The proposed return to O-levels, officially a leak, appeared in the mail. The English baccalaureate certificates, you remember those? They were ultimately abandoned. And changes to A-levels were exclusives for individual papers. And in July, the national curriculum changes appeared first in the Mail and the Telegraph. Now, some, cha- some stories we have been in on, some not. I've started, though, to sense a greater eagerness in recent months to be a bit more inclusive, possibly not unrelated to the fact of a general election on the not-too-distant horizon. What hasn't changed much is the personal style of Michael Gove. He is a paradox. Known as one of the politest people in Westminster, he can be anything but to his critics. One union leader, never likely to be a fan, described him as excruciatingly polite. The Spectator magazine, after his Mr. Men attack on history teaching, do you remember that? Called him a wind-up artist. And there is undoubtedly that in his political persona, a delight at attacking his opponents with elegantly crafted phrases and a withering tone. He's a former journalist and a former thespian, and you can detect both in his modus operandi, which is to have one eye on the headline and another on the dramatic impact. He tends to succeed, I think, on both fronts, delighting supporters and enraging critics. The lack of love between him and the two main teaching unions was at its most theatrically apparent at the NAS-UWT conference of last year, when Mr Gove turned down an invitation to speak and the General Secretary, Chris Keats, retaliated by giving the whole of her speech with a cardboard cutout of a grinning Secretary of State by her side. Did anyone see it? Yeah, well, you know, you will have remembered it if you did. It was, I've seen a few surreal things in my time, but really that top one. But processology, how a story becomes a story and the machinations in the background, tends to be a real turn-off with audiences. You have to rein yourself in sometimes. Well, I have to rein myself in sometimes and focus on what really matters, which is the significance of changes and their effect on the viewing and listening public. Not that we can always predict that either. One of the best ways of gauging how a story's going down is to look at the number of hits any one story gets on our website, of course, and university stories always do very well. 
One arena where process is discussed more is Twitter. I don't know how many of you use Twitter, but it's developed a major presence in newsrooms. I know that many people dismiss it as a bit frivolous, and recently, of course, it's faced major criticism over the fact that some men have been using it to, abuse, to be abusive to women. But Twitter has become one of the first places you go to if you want to find out if something's going on. It's not foolproof, you have to make your own checks, but it is where news increasingly breaks first, and it's a wonderful tool for staying in touch and for finding out what people in education or what other journalists are saying. And because inevitably you become part of a community, in my case an education one, some of that discussion that the general public might find boring, but specialists love, about how things come out and how things are presented and spun, does get aired. Someone recently described Twitter as our newest wire service, but it's actually a good gossip column too. Well, I've dwelt a lot on newsmaking and on politics, as you might expect given my background, but the other bonus of this job is the simple fact of going into schools and interviewing children. From nursery onwards, children are great for filmmakers because they're photogenic, they're funny, they're unselfconscious, and they're sometimes surprising. So I want to end by showing you a mishmash of voices taken from different reports. You'll have to guess the context, but it doesn't really matter if you can't. It's just that these are the voices that can make a news piece come alive and that audiences often remember. So those last two children were on a summer school here at Oxford. Uh, I think that was probably Somerville College. So it's a sentimental ending, but why not? Thank you for listening. (laughs) 